Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants, and we stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message. My name is Ida Naranjo, and I am a member of this congregation. I am reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 9 to 11 and 58. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted, persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I 
but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus keeps so busy praising my Jesus. Keeps so busy praising my Jesus. Because when I'm healing the sick, when I'm healing the sick, when I'm healing the sick, ain't got time to die. Because it's ain't all of my time. All my time, the rocks are gonna cry out, glory and honor, glory and honor. Lord, I keep so busy working for the kingdom, keep so busy working for the kingdom, keep so busy working for the kingdom. Cause when I'm feeding the poor, when I'm feeding the poor, when I'm feeding the poor, cause it takes all of my time, all my time. Lord, 
keeps so busy serving my master. Keeps so busy serving my master. Keeps so busy serving my master. Cause when I'm giving my all, when I'm giving my all, when I'm giving my all, cause it takes all my time, all my time. Charles, great to have you back. Thank you, choir. Will you pray with me, please? The words of preparation that are printed in your bulletin or on your screen if you're worshiping online. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to thank you all for the uh, really positive feedback on last week's sermon in which I shared about new scholarship about Mary Magdalene. And this new scholarship, as you heard, sheds new light, revolutionary light, on what we always believed was the text and challenges norms of patriarchy and demonstrates a mutuality in Jesus' relationship with those who followed him. This new scholarship shows his equal respect and his uh, priority for gender inclusivity in those who were closest to him, upon whom he relied, and upon whom he bestowed the blessing of carrying the legacy of the church. It's so exciting when we learn something new with such far-reaching consequences. And as we learned last week, this new scholarship was made possible by newly digitized copies of some of the oldest versions of the New Testament. It was helped by someone who made invisible uh, something that was invisible become visible. And who was that someone? There's sort of an invisible character even in the telling of the story. Who was that person? Well, it was a librarian. A librarian who did the digitizing. And in fact, librarians have been at the forefront of struggling for justice and freedom from championing, championing, championing open access to information to the preservation of information that is inconvenient to oppressive power. For example, in 2017, the U.S. Department of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, 
requested that all documents pertaining to detainee abuse allegations and investigations be destroyed. And recognizing the threat that this poses to an extremely vulnerable population, but also the threat it poses to uh, our potential as a people to repent and repair what has happened, the archival librarians connected to those documents have resisted the request. And of course, in, in 1991, you may know this story, I was reminded of it, but the, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were an amazing find of, of archaeology. But when, after, right after they were found, they were, they were kept under very tight control. And in 1991, the full collection of the Dead Sea Scrolls that contained some of our earliest biblical texts and ancillary literature from biblical times was released just set free to all scholars by a radical librarian named William Moffat. Moffat was the head librarian at the Huntington in Pasadena, and he broke this lock that had been held on these precious documents, releasing them to the world, and it, it, it created this explosion and surge of, of excitement in um, biblical scholarship and biblical archaeology. I often remark to our congregation that Epworth is blessed with more than our share of educators, from elementary to secondary to higher education. But there's another vocation that is present in, in more relative abundance here at Epworth. Anyone know what this, this vocation is? The librarian, yes. So this being Labor Day weekend, um, it's a time that we celebrate the contributions of labor to building a good and just and beloved society. I invited one of our own resident librarians, Charlotte Rubens, to enter into dialogue about how courageously living out our God-given vocations, whatever they may be, is a revolutionary act of faith about her own radical librarianship, and about her complimentary call as an activist working for justice at the intersections of sexuality, gender, race, culture, and ethnicity. So Charlotte, come on up and uh, let's enter into our dialogue. Okay, all right. Well, welcome Charlotte. We made it. Yeah, we made it. <laughs> right. Well, I'm really grateful that you uh, are willing to enter into this dialogue on this Labor Day weekend in the homecoming series and also today, which is Oakland Pride. Yeah. So thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. All right. You're welcome. No problem. <laughs> I should be at Pride, but you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So I, I wanted to start just by mentioning that you were actually the person who reminded me um, as we left the sanctuary last weekend um, about mil uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and shared with me the name of the librarian who revolutionized uh, access to those texts, William Moffat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to th thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that... that uh, action by uh, Mr. Moffat, who is no longer with us, but he really risked his, his livelihood and his reputation doing that. Um, and there were uh, detractors and supporters 
worldwide, but it, oh, uh, okay, uh -huh. now I can even hear myself, that's weird. Um, anyway, I was saying that um, Mr. Moffat actually uh, risked his livelihood and, um, and his reputation doing that because, uh, uh, as Kristen said, there were some people who had a lock on those uh, documents and to just sort of put them out there was sort of unheard of at that point. Um, I myself have been involved in, uh, in um, in working on open access to materials um, because, uh, for example, I, I worked in, um, for the University of California uh, in their storage facility out in Richmond. I don't know how many of you know it's there, but uh, there are about seven million volumes out there that uh, belong to the northern libraries of UC. And uh, UC was one of the first five institutions in America to sign up with Google to make Google Books. I don't know if you use Google Books, but uh, I was there for, uh, and I was um, the operations manager out at the facility, that library facility, when we um, implemented the um, procedures talk about labor, there's a lot of work that goes in, in the back rooms of libraries, and I was, for the most part, in the back rooms of libraries. Uh, and when we hit the three millionth book that we scanned, that um, we sent for scanning to Google, and uh, by now there may be, there's probably another three million, who knows, there are, uh, you know, it's going on all the time. And it's very, very important, because I see digitizing of texts as really important to leveling the field for people who cannot get to the material. Um, and our job as librarians is to connect readers, uh, and sometimes I call them needers, people who need material, or for, even if it's for entertainment, uh, public librarians, for example, do more, well, so do academic librarians, with um, DVDs, CDs, uh, music, uh, all kinds of things. And it's our job to make sure that those people who need it can get to it, can find it, get to it, have some idea about it, uh, that of its existence. And so that's what uh, this digitizing stuff is all about. Fantastic. It, it's, um, it, it's so exciting to me because, uh, you know, what, what we've been talking about in the homecoming series and last week um, is that the way that we dive into understanding, the way that we uh, grow is by learning. And uh, we, can't, we can't learn if we don't have access to resources and materials that expand our, the, you know, what, what we could imagine or the way we can think about things differently. And uh, you've shared with me, and I, I had some sense that there, there's actually a radical librarian movement. And it, it's a sort of an a official, unofficial, underground movement, but uh, uh, that started, what, mid-century? It started in the 70s. In the 70s. Well, it, it probably it might have started before that, but... Uh, I think you're referring to revolting librarians. I am. Okay. I'm getting there. Right. <laughs> there was, there was a uh, there was a librarian who was actually a New Yorker, uh, as I am, 
who moved out here, as I did, uh, and uh, was quite radical, Celeste West. I don't know if anyone here knew her, um, but she was at the San Francisco Public, and she put together, um, she called for papers from librarians who had something to say about what was right or wrong in the profession, and put together a book called The Revolting Librarians. From that came um, a series called Booklager, which went on for several years, for a number of years, and um, the, that conversation continued. And I'll talk a little more about that conversation in a little bit. But um, I always respected them, I loved them, because they were so irreverent, uh, not very scholarly, uh, although they did, <laughs> they did give, um, uh, have articles with really good resources that were not in the regular library periodical literature. So uh, that was Celeste West. Yeah. Um, and uh, right now, we, ha we even have a whole respectable journal called the Journal of Radical Librarianship. And, and I think we really need it now because librarians, uh, I want to give a shout out to the public librarians, even though Amy isn't here, because she works in communications. And I, I hope you all know that there's a lot of hostility against uh, public librarians right now going on, uh, instigated by our previous president uh, and his folks, um, uh, the right wing, around censorship. And the, jobs, the job of a librarian, and one of the things that drew me to it when I decided I did not want to be uh, a professor or scholar, I was in graduate school, and I, um, sometimes I think I was just there to find Emily, my spouse. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that worked out fine for me, and uh, but I didn't like the scholarly part. I just uh, and um, tried a bunch of things. I did a lot of different kind of work. Um, I was uh, I did, but but I liked the work in libraries. I had I tried several jobs in libraries, and at Har at Harvard I could be a librarian, and I was also a, la a union organizer. I firmly believe in unions. I was uh, raised in a union family. Um, uh oh, I'm losing my thought here. But in any case, um, librarians are very concerned with censorship. Uh, you know, we, uh, we have a Bill of Rights, and in the Bill of Rights, which is for both our users and for the librarians, it's our job to make sure that people can get what they want, when they want it, if possible, and uh, with no censorship, uh, uh, no judgment, I would say, uh, which put me in an interesting position sometimes because you sometimes have to help people get material that is not very favorable to you. As a, as a lesbian, you know, I would have to, an, un, an undergraduate would ask me, for example, when I was on a reference desk, you know, what, what can I read that will give me the arguments against giving uh, marriage rights or rights to uh, queers? So, uh, but you have to help them. You can also direct them to the counter arguments, but uh, you know, censorship is a, is a huge issue right now as it's being, uh, as the job of educating our children, uh, in my view, which is part of the job of a parent, uh, is being put on these uh, librarians and uh, and judgments about material is just uh, is just out of control. So anyway, I don't want to get on a rant. Kristen's yeah. here to stop me from doing that. No, that was all that was all brilliant. <laughs> and you know what you said about the you know the 
the ways that librarians have opened um, access to help people, um, you know, get get to materials to make new arguments for what they they know in themselves to to be true, but they haven't haven't seen or haven't haven't had the words or the language to construct that. You know, I, I think that's really close to what we're asked to do as as people of faith, imagining God and God's vision for the world. That we sort of by definition we can't get there by ourselves because we are not God. So we need we need each other, we need uh, new ideas to come closer to both who God is and the world that God uh, is asking us to help co-create. And I have a, I have a, quet, a, a quote from Celeste West, the, um, the creator of the journal Revolting Librarians and Booklegger, and she said, Radical librarians refused to think that there was any conflict of interest between their lives and their work. Instead, they sought to infuse their hopes, conflicts, and growth into that work. And to me, that sounded a lot like what we try to do as Christians, to, to labor in honesty and in community to bring about God's kingdom on earth. And you, you also said as we um, were preparing... Um, you said this very provocative thing, that there are many kinds of rebellion. So I wanted to ask you to say more about that. Um, well, I think, um, I think, first of all, that uh, just to agree with Celeste West, that I don't think, I hope, that we don't, none of us leave our principles at the door when we go to work. Uh, uh, because it's very important that we do good work, uh, and librarianship is what my Buddhist friends call right livelihood, mm -hmm. one of the many occupations. Um, and uh, so in talking about rebellion, I, what I was really thinking of was that there, in all of our occupations, where I, I think, there are things within the profession or occupation we're in the vocation that need to be changed. Um, this is what progress is about, finding things that are wrong and fixing them or moving forward. I firmly believe that to move society uh, or the, the people forward, that um, change, is, change is just part of life. And so, um, but I also think that we have to go outside our profession often in order to change the rest of, you know, help, the, help outside of the profession. So I, I would like to give two examples, one of each. Um, in terms of changing something within the profession, I was, um, within the profession, I was, well, I think the digitization is part of, is part of that. And, uh, and also, when I was, I was a cataloger as a beginning librarian, I don't know if we have a librarian here today, but uh, besides me, uh, but catalogers, I don't know if, uh, I think you've all heard of a catalog probably if you've gone to a library. They used to be card catalogs, those little three by five cards. I used to make those. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then when um, computers came along, we saw immediately how useful they could be, of course. So um, when I was a cataloger, the, the, the reason catalogers are important is because they develop the pointers 
uh, even when, for the online catalogs that get you to your material. And the way they do that is there, there used to be a very set vocabulary set by the Library of Congress uh, that make what are called subject headings, where you would look at the bottom of the card, right? And now it's just in, built into the uh, online record, uh, and there would be subjects. Well, as a cataloger, uh, I was a, also a member of my professional organization, and, uh, and I was in a group of um, li uh, like women's studies librarians. And um, the subject headings in the 70s, uh, well, this was actually the 90s. The by the 90s, it had not caught up with the second wave of feminism even. Uh, and uh, so a little group of us did a study and uh, pointed this out in the study and gave some recommendations for the Library of Congress to get on that because you could not even find, you know, Asian, Asian uh, women, uh, nuns, conversations with nuns, none of the kinds of things that were being published. Uh, uh, so, uh, so that was just one thing. Uh, thing I worked on that was within the profession. Going outside the profession, I don't know if people remember um, in, uh, in 92, I think, yeah, 93 maybe, 92, 93, Colorado passed Amendment 2. I don't know if you all remember that, but um, Amendment 2 was a pretty gross piece of legislation that passed, I don't know, uh, the ballot, uh, which um, banned banned the people of cities and towns from uh, passing any kind of anti-discrimination uh, laws. And uh, that was basically aimed at queers. Uh, and uh, that was pretty awful. So uh, my professional organization, which has large conferences because there are so many librarians, we had a conference in Denver that year. And, uh, and many people didn't go, which I was, I applaud them for it, but I had to go because I was an officer and uh, uh, in, a ma in the management uh, part of the libra uh, academic librarians. And so um, I drafted some revo resolutions, some revolutions, revolutions. that would be nice. <laughs> some resolutions uh, to make sure that we did not return because our, we used to go there every four years for conferences. and. Uh, and that was passed by the the larger um, the larger group uh, at the top, the American Library Association. And I led a little march to the Capitol in my librarian suit, which if you want to see a picture sometime, Emily could bring it in in my librarian suit. Uh, uh, and uh, gave a speech on the Capitol steps there. And uh, anyway, that passed, and we did not go back to Denver till uh, 2009, I think, something like that. Um, and uh, I only remembered that because in preparing, I was looking for a date for something else, and I found a thank you note from the mm. organization for mm. getting them off their butts about that. So uh, anyway, so I think we do, we have work. We have work inside of our professions and work outside to continue to work toward social justice and against some of the uh, worse uh, kinds of things that people like to bring up to us. I don't, okay, so. Great, great. Yeah, at, and today, uh, speaking of work outside of our professions, today is Oakland Pride. 
And um, by the way, Epworth will have a table at, at Oakland Pride. I hope folks will uh, come and visit us. We'll be between 20th and 21st on Broadway. And if you would like to uh, help with the table, we could still use some help. So uh, let me know after worship and I can share more about that with you. But I know you um, have been an activist within many communities um, and for many years. And one of the communities um, uh, included the first national lesbian rights group, Daughters of Bilitis or Bilitis or Bilitis. It's, it's uh, pronounced different ways, but it was the first national lesbian rights group, uh, which was founded by a Filipina working woman, her partner, and three other couples, including a well-known couple from San Francisco. And, uh, and Charlotte and Emily were part of the chapter in, in Boston. So I wanted to ask you to, to say a few words about, about that, especially on this Pride Sunday, and about maybe your, some other examples of your activism that went beyond the LGBTQ community. Yeah, well, I think um, you're talking about Del, Phyllis and Del, yeah. Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. And, um, uh, who were always embarrassed, by the way, and actually came out with an article confessing they were not the only ones who made daughters, who originated daughters of Belitis. I always say Belitis, and that's wrong, so don't do that, but it's, it's French, so I'm not going to even try it. Um, in any case, uh, Emily and I, well, the organization was founded as, as in order to make a, so, a place for lesbians to socialize outside of bars. Um, and, uh, and that was uh, founded in 1955. There was no such organization, there were no lesbian organizations in this country. It, you can imagine uh, there were no rights or anything like that to even show your face or have your name out there. So uh, keeping people's names private was very, very important to the organization. Anyway, they, it existed, the national organization existed from 55 to about 69. 1969, and so Emily and I did not hook up with the, with the national organization. But when we lived in Boston, we, the, some of the local chapters continued until 2005. Um, and so uh, we did uh, work with them for just about a year. Um, and uh, you know, they put out an, a, a, a publication um, but uh, more of my work had to do with things like I, I, uh, I, I think that the reason the, the organization actually went under was it was not activist enough, especially as feminism, the second wave came along, uh, there was the Vietnam War, there were all these kinds of things, and of course Stonewall. So activism became a much um, more active. <laughs> part of, uh, of being uh, gay, and, uh, and by then there were, more, there were more outlets besides bars for, for, uh, for people. So I think the organization sort of petered out because it was not very radical. Um, <clears throat> but I did work on some things. I, uh, I worked on in the late 80s and the early 90s. The, there was a, we started a West Coast lesbian archive which uh, lasted a few years, but it was hard to sustain, so we boxed it up and sent it to the June Mazer collection down in Los Angeles, and they have their own building and everything. And, so, uh, and now I see that there's another West, I, I think it's West Coast or Bay Area lesbian archive that has started. 
um, in Oakland, so th th this, that's pretty good. Um, and um, and I, I was, at, you know, I was active in some uh, very uh, women-oriented uh, institutions, like we had a, 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 an all-women's co-op, lesbian food co-op, get your food from, uh, and uh, that kind of thing. Um, I do want to say also, though, about Pride, that four people started the, what's now Pride. Uh, it started as the Christopher Street Liberation March. And one of those people turned out later to become a librarian, Ellen Broidy, who uh, was an undergraduate at the time, but there was a, a male couple and a female couple who started those marches. And uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to Ellen because she was a very, uh, very uh, well-known uh, librarian. And, uh, and so um, I thank her for that, for her work. Um, and um, I forget what else yeah. I was going to say. And this being the homecoming series, I wanted to just ask as we close, how have you found a, a home here at Epworth? How is Epworth your faith oh, yeah. home? Well, my, um, uh, my family, my father was uh, of Jewish descent, and, uh, but he was an atheist, so that didn't help. Um, my mother was Protestant, but not a churchgoer, so my grandparents brought us to church. So that's where I learned the stories as a kid, but to be frank, I didn't go to church for like 40 years. And when I was looking, Lloyd Elliott, pointed us this way and said, I think you'd like that church. And, uh, um, and what, we've, what I have found here is uh, my principles are held up. I think the, uh, the, the congregation, the sermons, the congregation, and the ministries all point to um, picking an act, act, activity that you want to take part in. And I have learned a lot. Learning is part of my journey and uh, grown, and uh, one of the things I do is I always think global, act local, and, uh, and it has helped me that way, and, uh, and I have always appreciated it. Amen, amen. Thank you for, so much, years. Charlotte. I came for a baptism of my kid, and it's 20 years later. And uh, the, <laughs> what, what we know about how people get into church is that people come on elbows. There's a phrase, people come on elbows, which basically means people come when someone else brings them. So your, your own grandparents, Lloyd Elliott, were how you got to Faith and then to Epworth. And, and next week, uh, we're, as, we, as we close this series, we're going to think about how we introduce this faith home to, to others uh, and bringing people in on elbows. So I want to thank you, Charlotte. I want to ask everybody to help me thank Charlotte. Amen. Amen. Thank Thanks, you. Charlotte. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now into um, a, a time of singing. We also, in addition to a lot of educators here at Epworth and librarians, we also, there's, a, there's another profession, another vocation that we have uh, maybe more than our share of, and that's clergy. So we have a lot of retired clergy, a lot of active clergy in other, in other uh, particular ministries beyond the local church. 
And this next hymn that we are about to sing is written by one of our clergy connected to Epworth, David Orsman, uh, who has relocated to North Carolina but still worships with us online. Hello, David. And David has written uh, a new hymn that is specifically uh, lifting up communion, and we're going to sing that today. So, David, we thank you for your labor. We thank you for offering this to our worship today. You've been listening to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week. Good morning. I wanted to share a little uh, anecdote about Labor Day and the, the connection between music and political activism as relates especially to coal mining, which was really sort of the nascency of, of the labor movement. There's a great folk music organization here in the Bay Area called the San Francisco Folk Music Club. I don't know if any of you may know of it or are members. It was founded by a really remarkable woman named Faith Petrick back in, I think, 48. Anyway, in those days, there was a newsletter which was, you know, on paper and mailed out, and now that is an online forum. And recently, just as we're coming up to Labor Day, some of the newcomers on the board were saying, hey, can we cut with the politics already? This is supposed to be a music uh, scene. And I don't know what you'd think about that, Jerry, but I think we understand here that the two are really inseparable, and it reminded me of a story that my dad used to like to tell when my sister Bethany, who's now a professional singer of some reputation, was in kindergarten. 
the teacher asked the kids, does anybody know how to sing a whole song the whole way through? And she raised her hand and sang Woody Guthrie's working uh, person's al uh, anthem, The Banks Are Made of Marble. And I don't know if you know it, I'll, I'll give you just a line of it. It says, uh, I've seen the weary miner scrumming coal dust from his back and I heard his children crying, got no coal to heat the shack. But the banks are made of marble with a guard at every door. And the vaults are stuffed with silver that the miners sweated for. So my dad, who was teaching at the high school next door, finds out about this because the principal calls him out of class and calls him into the office and says, Mr. Pratt, are you a communist? <laughs> And on that note. <laughs> and his answer was? No. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> There's power in a factory, power in the land, power in the hand of the worker. But it all amounts to nothing. If together we don't stand There's power in a union Now the lessons of the past Were all learned with workers' blood The mistakes of the bosses we must pay for From the cities to the farmlands Trenches full of mud War's always been the bosses' way, sir Union forever defending our rights Down with the black leg all workers unite With our brothers and our sisters from many foreign lands There's power in a union Brutality and unjust laws cannot defeat us. But who'll defend the workers who cannot organize when the bosses send their lackeys out to cheat us? Money speaks for money, the devil for his own. Who comes to speak for the skin and the bone? But a comfort to the widow, a light to the child. Power in a union, union forever defending our rights. Down with the black leg, all workers unite with our brothers and our sisters. Together we will stand. There is power in a union with our brothers and our sisters. Forever we will stand. There. Power in a union.